Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting harvesting happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. This episode offers psychosocial education designed to inspire and motivate our listeners. The information provided does not constitute a therapeutic relationship nor a substitute for professional mental health care. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911, go to your nearest emergency room, or for listeners in the United States, text 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This conversation originally aired in April of 2021. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about the mechanics of change, examining the adaptable mind with my guest today, Dr. Richard Lane, MD. He is a clinical psychiatrist and psychotherapist trained in cognitive neuroscience and emotion research, whose research has focused on brain mechanisms of emotion and emotion regulation, emotional weariness, neurovisceral integration, and the mechanisms by which emotions influences susceptibility to sudden cardiac death. His background in cognitive and effective neuroscience is now being integrated with his ongoing experience as a therapist and psychotherapy educator. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lane. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Oh, it is a pleasure to have you because personally, I am fascinated by neuroscience. If I had my education to do over again, that's probably where I would find myself. (laughs) Uncovering more of what's under the human hood and how to use our brains in service to our own healing. Yes. Well, I felt very fortunate after I was fully trained as a psychiatrist and on the faculty and doing clinical work and, and doing research, I was able to get a scientist development award from the National Institutes of Health to be trained in neuroscience and emotion research and neuroimaging. And I feel very fortunate because it enables me to speak both the basic science as well as the, the clinical application and the interrelation between the two. So let's talk about memory. Let's talk about our experiences. And we've all had a year full of them, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but like no other. And the application of the research and the work that you're doing to help us better understand and equip ourselves to deal with emotion dysregulation, which so many of us have experienced. Yes. So what would you like to know? Well, (laughs) Let's start out with the basic. When we talk about memories, each one of us comes packed, filled with memories. But what is a memory really? Right. So from the moment of birth, if not before, we're always learning things and we're learning things about our environment and how to interpret them. 
the thing about memory is that we think of it as, you know, a record of the past. And indeed, it is that. But the reason why that's so important is that it's a guide to the future. And we think that, you know, in a, a really important area when it comes to our happiness is our social relationships, what we know about social relationships, how they work, and what we expect will happen, both on our part in terms of what we'll do, how we'll respond, and what we'll expect other people to do and how the transactions will go. And those are a kind of schematic memory. And what's really new and exciting is that in the past two decades, the neuroscience of memory has revealed that memories are not permanent records of the past, but they are modifiable and they are updatable. And so what that means, actually, what's been discovered is that whenever you recall a memory, it, it goes into a labile or modifiable state for the next four to six hours. And that memory can be updated by information that comes in during that four to six hour window, and then it gets stored again. We call that reconsolidation, and it happens at night while we're sleeping. And so what this book is about is really trying to take the most advantage therapeutically of that phenomenon. How can we update memories in a way that will be therapeutically beneficial? Let me ask you a question about that. Because what I'm hearing you say is then we have an experience, and usually we're trying to rewrite negative experiences, right? Not mm -hmm. necessarily positive experiences, because they're right. positive and they're juicy and we savor them and we love them. But when bad things happen, what you're saying is that there is a window of opportunity where we can rewrite the narrative or work with what has happened. So when it gets filed, once it gets stored in the back office, that it takes on a different context. That's right. Wow. And so, yeah. <laughs> that's well, that's, that's right. important. It's very important. And there's real interest in the animal research on this in erasing memories. That's really not entirely possible with people yet. But what we're talking about is updating them. So there are a couple of different kinds of traumas. I mean, one kind of trauma is a, a single horrible event. And, you know, people have those indeed. And we know something about what happens in the brain and why it can create post-traumatic stress disorder. It's because the emotional arousal is so at such a high level that it's overwhelming. We think that has something to do with a brain structure called the amygdala. And it, in the activity of the hippocampus, which is our primary memory structure in the brain, of course, it's more complicated than that, and there are other structures, but just in simple terms, the hippocampus is inhibited and the amygdala is overactivated. And what that means is that this context, the contextualization of that specific event is compromised. And as a result, when anything that resembles the traumatic event happens, that lack of contextualization leads to a very strong response consistent with the trauma that's kind of inappropriate. So what we're trying to do in therapy is to change the contextualization and update it. And a really key point in our proposal is that 
the way to change memories from the past is to activate the old memory, what happened, but also the very painful emotions associated with it and to fully experience that. That's step one, and that's quite difficult mm, to do. Yeah. It needs to be done in the context of psychotherapy where there's a, a trusting confiding relationship where you feel safe with the therapist. And step two is that the therapist will intervene in a way that is corrective. What that means is, for example, if something shameful happened in the past, maybe you've never even told anyone about it, you expect to be criticized, but then you have enough trust in your therapist to mention it. And while you expect to be criticized, you will might be shocked to see that the therapist is caring, compassionate, non-judgmental, empathic, even loving. And that's so unexpected and so much, so much more positive than expected. It's corrective. What you've done then is you've activated that old memory and the affect associated with it, the emotion associated with it, and you've updated the emotional content of that memory so that when it gets stored again, the emotional content changes. What that means then is Following that, you might approach difficult situations again um, in a slightly different way. You might be a little bit more trusting, less inclined to avoid, uh, more open to what might be possible. And lo and behold, as a result of overcoming the avoidance, you have more positive experiences that contribute to the building of a revised schema. Hmm. And how much or what part of the therapeutic relationship calls for the repetition of the story? Is it, what you're saying is that we keep telling the story till the charge is reduced? Or So th that's a really interesting question. I think that for starters, it's certainly very useful to explicitly recall the memory. But the research on memory reconsolidation really indicates that you don't necessarily need to explicitly recall it. What you need to do is to have it be reactivated by a reminder, something that will connect to the memory, but won't necessarily lead to explicit recall. So, so for example, you know, it, it's not unusual for clients in psychotherapy to view um, the therapist, you know, in ways consistent with how they experienced a parent in their childhood. And so to have that same kind of feeling for the therapist that's similar to the parent would be an indicator that there's a reminder process going on, which would mean that that reminder is activating the memory enough so that it can be modifiable. It makes total sense. And when we talk about uh, going back to the corrective emotional experience, mm -hmm. something bad has happened in, in the context of therapy, that event is reprocessed. And I think what you're saying is in a way repackaged and replaced mm -hmm. with a positive memory or enhanced. Let's maybe because you can't really erase it, you enhance it, right, with something that is more positive. Right. The thing to know about memory is it's, you know, amazing, you know, mental phenomenon. A memory is not stored like 
a book on a shelf, but rather it's represented in the brain in multiple systems. So you might think about a past event. There's visual information. You know, there's a soundtrack associated with it. People are moving around and there's emotions. And we're not trying to change the memory of what happened. But what we are trying to do is we're trying to update the emotional component and transform the emotional component. And and it has and I think it has to happen bit by bit. I don't think that it all changes immediately, but I think that repetition and you know continuing work in therapy and then taking what you've learned in therapy and applying it in the outside world and having new and better experiences because you'll start to perceive the situations a little bit differently. You know, you'll maybe be more inclined to give other people the benefit of the doubt. You will have different kinds of emotional responses. And it contributes to a change in the schema. Let me make a, an important point about different kinds of memory. Before we do, I want to take yeah. a break because I, I okay. want, and I want to come back and I don't want to break you in the middle of an important thought. To learn more about Dr. Richard D. Lane and his work, he is also, I want to let everybody know, he is a professor at the University of Arizona Department of Psychiatry. You can find him on the website there. You can find the new book, Neuroscience of Enduring Change, Implications for Psychotherapy, on Amazon, Oxford University Press, or wherever you find your favorite books. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back and we'll continue this very interesting conversation. Each day we have the intellectual freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable, regardless of external circumstance. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, urge them to seek professional support because good psychological health is vital in achieving a satisfying life. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for psychosocial educational resources to boost emotional and social intelligence. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness? Sharing is caring. Pay it forward by spreading the word to your tribe through social media. Find us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook and me at Lisa Kamen on Twitter. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Richard Lane. We're talking about the mechanics of change, examining the adaptable mind. Let's get back to it. And Dr. Lane, I want to just mention, as I did during the break, of a cartoon that I used to give my clients. And the cartoon is this. It's an image on the left of a really, really, really messy linen closet where everything is sort of strewn about, you know, there's no order, everything is in chaos. And the subtitle is, you know, this is your brain on PTSD. And then on the other side of the page is a very neat and tidy, perfectly folded and organized closet. And the caption is, you know, this is your brain after therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like it very much. And I think there's a great deal of truth in it because I think that, you know, trauma is associated with, you know, the experience of chaos and not really being able to make sense out of it. And the, the, the second photo that you talked about is one where things are organized, coherent. You can kind of make sense of the whole story. The one thing that I would add to this analogy, which I like very much, is if you added to the first paragraph a kind of blind spot, if you will, or kind of murky area where things weren't well-defined at all. Because I think what characterizes trauma is 
because of the way the brain is functioning at the time and being emotionally overwhelmed, there's all sorts of emotional meaning to the trauma that never gets processed, right? It certainly wasn't processed at the time. And so often people just keep these horrible experiences to themselves. But when you meet with a psychotherapist, you reactivate the memory in a safe context. And you also have the additional perspective of the therapist. And the key idea here is that in trauma, you formulate the emotions associated with the trauma for the first time, often in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So the example would be, you might have been overwhelmed with a feeling of fear, and that's all you can recall. But then later, when you review it with the therapist sometime later, you can think about the person who did this, what their background was, you might get in touch with feelings of anger or rage that were not feelings that you had at the time, necessarily, um, maybe because it was such an emergency situation, you were you were so scared. But it is appropriate. And it's, it's a kind of an elaboration of, you know, what made sense, and, and contributes to healing. So let me elaborate further on and connected to what we were talking about before, which is that so far, we've really essentially been talking about like a single event trauma. One of the things we talk about in the book and in previous papers is how there are different kinds of memory. In particular, specific event memory is called episodic memory. But then there's what we call semantic memory or generalizable knowledge, which is a distillation, if you will, of a variety of episodic or single event experiences, right? So for example, we use the example of a young child, very young child going to a park and seeing a little flying creature and it's yellow, it's got wings, it's got a beak. And then it sees another one that's a little bit bigger, it's red, you know, slightly different size, but it's got these common features of feathers and a beak. Over time, the, the child comes to recognize that there's a commonality and develops the concept of bird and learns the word bird. That's a distillation of different episodic experiences into a concept or generalizable knowledge, a semantic memory, if you will. We think the same thing happens as you're growing up. You, you live your life, you interact with family members, you have experiences, and it's not unusual for things to happen that may be intolerable. You develop what we call schematic memory. It's a type of semantic memory, schematic memory of what kinds of patterns are expected in relationships. What do you expect to happen in a family relationship, in a work relationship with someone in a position of authority? What happens when you interact with friends? And so that's what we come away with. We have an internal working model of the social world that develops and is highly adaptive for the childhood environment that we had. Then we grow up, we go out into the adult world and our internal working model is the one that got developed in childhood. It was beautifully adapted to whatever was going on there, but can be problematic in the adult situation, which is often why people come in 
for help. So what we talk about is how there's this, we propose what's called an integrated memory model, which is that episodic memory or event memory, semantic memory or generalizable knowledge and emotion, these three different functions are always interacting with one another. Okay. So essentially the key thing in, in psychotherapy, we talk about three processes. The first is to activate the old memory and the associated painful emotion. And that might be the kind of schema or semantic memory. Then you have a corrective emotional experience, right? So that's a particular kind of new event that's going to update that schema or semantic memory. And there's an emotional component to it, which is very important. Because when it comes to memory, we can't remember everything that happens. We need to remember the things that are most important. And one of nature's ways of ensuring that we remember what's important is what's emotionally charged. So we are activating old painful memories, but then having corrective experiences that are much more positive than expected. And that updates the memory and it's going to update the schema and get reconsolidated at night. This is promising and I can see how it could be perceived as terrifying at the same time. Yes. <laughs> this is. is not for the faint of heart, this work. <laughs> that's right. And that's why a therapeutic alliance is so essential. I mean, you really have to trust and feel safe with your therapist. You really have to feel like they're there with you. Yeah. And then you have, you know, added strength, added ability to deal with things that you've never been able to deal with before. And when we talk about how the brain and the body responds to trauma, you mentioned this in the first segment, we have an adverse experience, we have a traumatic experience, that memory is stored, and then anything that is perceived that smells even the slightest bit mm -hmm. of that aroma of that original <laughs> event mm -hmm. triggers that trauma response in the body, and the brain cannot decipher between that original event and somebody cutting us off in traffic that sent us on uh, an anger bender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I, and that's something that we're not necessarily aware of. That's, that's true. I think one thing to say about that is that the kind of the degree of the severity of the trauma will influence how nonspecific elicitors, you know, there are for reactivating the sense of trauma. So if it's really severe, it will be pretty nonspecific. But if it's a milder situation, then it will be, you know, more, more differentiated. I was going to ask, how does one reach out or make this form of therapy more widely known? In other words, you don't know what you don't know, right? You, <laughs> so if you're, if, you're, right. if you're stuck in a loop of, you know, you're depressed, you're angry, life is not working for you, you're adverse to therapy because, you know, you know strong people don't go see therapists, uh, you know, whatever the narrative is that one has running in their mind. But yet there is help that is available that that can rewrite these experiences. How do you encourage the public? How do you encourage people who are listening to find qualified help to do this? Well, I think 
certainly one way is to talk to your primary care physician and ask for a referral. I think another way is if you have insurance, medical insurance, to ask, you know, what kind of coverage you have for psychotherapeutic services and to find providers that accept your insurance and then start looking into those people. There's no better way to find a good therapist than, you know, a friend or colleague who's had a good experience with the therapist, you know, to try them out. Again, that's not a guarantee because it really depends a lot on the specific chemistry between the two people, and that's sometimes hard to predict. On the other hand, uh, therapists who have been you know, successful with a variety of people and in particular have dealt with problems that um, you know, the person in question is dealing with. For example, grief. You know, uh, We had somebody who was a friend who was kind of grief-stricken and um, who would I recommend? Well, of all the people that I know, I know somebody who I know of a therapist who did great work with somebody who was having trouble with grief. And so I made that recommendation. It's that kind of thing. And if you're not fortunate enough to have insurance, there are resources available that do have qualified therapists providing at low or no cost mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking of Given Hour, for example, um, which is a, a, a nationwide organization that will offer help to people who, who, who don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. And there are mental health clinics that, you know, take Medicaid, for example, um, and, you know, for low income uh, populations. So, um, yeah, I think you have to, I, I'm not, I'm not very familiar with the resource that you mentioned, but it's great to know that there are such things, but um you know, and and of course there are crisis lines. So if you're feeling suicidal <clears throat> and yes. thinking of ending your life, it's terribly important to get some help uh, and to call and to have someone to talk to. And you know, if things are bad enough, then you know you might end up um, going to the emergency department and getting evaluated, and then they can connect you with with people and they know what resources are available. I think the bottom line, in, in summary, to me, uh, of all that we've talked about is the importance of mental health, that we treat mental health as a component of our overall health and well-being. The well-being of our mind is as important as the well-being of our body, that if we hmm. treat, treat you know, our, our hearts with care and we go and see a cardiologist, you know, if we weren't feeling well, the same way we should be treating our minds. Yes. I think that's absolutely true. What we're adding with the book is the idea of enduring change. So there's no question that going to a mental health professional can be very helpful in the short term and to get some relief. And it's not uncommon for things like depression and anxiety disorders for you to get relief, but then to have a return of symptoms. And of course, you can go back and get more help, which is what people do. But by virtue of advances in our understanding of memory and emotion, how the brain works, we're seeing a pathway for having therapy experiences that will really be enduring and you know, much less likely to have relapse. 
Thank you for spending part of your day with me. I appreciate and uh, value the work that you're doing. Um, the book we've been speaking of is The Neuroscience of Enduring Change, Implications for Psychotherapy. My guest today has been Dr. Richard D. Lane. He is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Arizona. You can find out more about him on the University of Arizona's website. And the book is available at Oxford University Press, Amazon, and wherever you get your books. Dr. Lane, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it very much. Me too. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. Richard Lane, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress Kamen, Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.